Happy Palm Sunday. It's good to see you all. This is the Sunday before Super Bowl Sunday in church world. Easter Sunday's coming next weekend. So glad you're here. At the end of our gathering this morning, we'll take a few minutes to celebrate the Lord's Supper. It is the first Sunday. Uh, and we'll also uh, kind of immerse ourselves for a few minutes in uh, remembering this first day of Holy Week, Palm Sunday. Uh, so we are continuing in this book of Acts. We're in week number nine. We'll be in chapter 11 of the book of Acts today. This series called The Church on the move. Uh, we're going we're gonna to see a, a special church in Acts chapter 11, uh, the church at Antioch. Um, and, and this is really a model church, a model New Testament church. Uh, so I remember, man, after graduating from Bible college, my wife and I moved to this little town in northeast Ohio called New Philadelphia, Ohio. And we went to a church there that was a Baptist church, uh, First Baptist Church of New Philadelphia. And, and I remember, like, so I came to Christ late in high school. I went to a very fundamental, independent Baptist church, very traditional. Um, and then we, we went to another church. Uh, I went to a church in Springfield, Missouri, where I was in college. Very similar in, in terms of, like, tradition, uh, a traditional Baptist church. Uh, we went to this church in this little town in, in Ohio. And what I compared this church to uh, was the church at Antioch. We, and the reason I did that, we, we would talk about this church like it was straight out of the book of Acts. Because it was a Baptist church who was doing things that we'd never seen a Baptist church do. In fact, they were not doing things that we had seen every other Baptist church do. Like, they weren't having, uh, they didn't have a choir. And we're like, what? That's so bizarre. They weren't singing, uh, they were singing some hymns, but they had guitars and drums, and, and people were casual. And we just remember going, this is really different. This is really cool. Um, but, but really, it wasn't just those outward things that impressed us. It was like their devotion to the word. They were so serious about the Bible. They were serious about making disciples. They were intentionally raising people, training people up, and then sending them out to do ministry. And we had never seen this uh, in, in the Baptist churches that we had been in. Uh, and, and the traditions and the things were, were really not there. And so we, we, we thought this church was like the closest thing we'd ever seen to the church at, at Antioch. Uh, we love this church. Now, over time, we realized, like every other church on the planet, it was not the perfect church. There was even, even today, there's things I would say, eh, we don't agree on these things. But man, we love that church because there were some, some cool traits that we would trace back to uh, the book of Acts, the book of Acts chapter 11, which we're going to see today, the church at Antioch. And so what we see as we're making our way through the book of Acts, as we make our way into chapter 11 today, you, you've heard me say this, that the book of Acts is, is full of, of transitions. There's a lot of transitions going on here. Here's just a handful of the transitions. We move from Jesus uh, to the Holy Spirit being the main um, one who's pushing the mission along. We see it move from Jew to Gentile. We saw that a lot last week, um, that God hasn't put away the Jew, but he's focusing on reaching Gentiles. Uh, it moves from the nation of Israel to the church, Jew and Gentile in one body. Today is where we see this transition from the Jerusalem church, which is the mother church, kind of the headquarter, uh, headquarters of, of the Christian mission. It moves from the Jerusalem church to this church in Antioch. So this is a significant transition we see today. We see, we're starting to see in chapter 11 here is this transition from the apostle Peter who was the apostle to the Jews, to the apostle Paul, who was the apostle to the Gentiles. So we see all these transitions taking place here. And, and so again, that church at Jerusalem was the mother church. 
And it was a significant church. It did many, many great things for the gospel. But it was primarily focused on reaching Jewish people, the nation of Israel. This church in Antioch was really the first one that's comprised of both Jew and Gentile. The, the, the Jerusalem church didn't change the world like this church that we'll see today, the church at, at Antioch. So the, the question we see as we, as we see this kind of transition taking place, as we see the, the church at Antioch, the, the question that I have is like, what makes a church biblical? What makes a church biblical? There's, there's lots of churches. Uh, y'all know this. We live in the South. There's a church on literally every corner, right? There are many, many, many churches. There are many churches who are incorporated, who are, you know, um, organized. But how many churches function as a New Testament church? That's, that's the question I've had as I looked at this church. And, and even deeper than that, what about us? What kind of church are we? My hope is that we are following the New Testament model, but you know, the question, if I'm being realistic, is, is, is my hope that we're like a New Testament church, is that aspirational only, like we aspire to be that, or are we actually following in the footsteps of the church at Antioch? And so I think we'll see some cool things as we look at this today. Today's sermon's called The Church on Mission, The Church on Mission. We're going to look at... Uh, Verses 19 through 30 of Acts chapter 11, we'll see one verse of transition in chapter 12, and then three verses in chapter 13. So let me give us a little bit of context uh, as we start, like about Antioch. What is, is this, this city of Antioch all about? So here's just some different facts about Antioch to help us get our bearings. Uh, Antioch was the third largest city in the Roman Empire, all right? It was Third behind um, Rome, Italy. It was it was behind Alexandria, Egypt. So it's a large city, population half a million people. It was very ethnically diverse. Uh, it was the capital of Syria. We'll see another Antioch of Pisidia later on in a couple chapters. But this is the capital of Syria. It's a base for the Roman army. Um, it was uh, for, for the Roman military. It was about 300 miles north of Jerusalem. Uh, about 30 miles east of the Mediterranean Sea. It was a crossroads. Uh, so you had multiple highways that were kind of going to the north and the south and the east. And, and so this was a very cosmopolitan and commercial area, very cultured, very worldly, very much about commerce. So it was, it was kind of like a, almost like a New York City, I would say, right? The, the, the city of Antioch, uh, much smaller, only half a million people. Uh, but religiously, it was very pluralistic. So many religions, many gods, many deities. It was very idolatrous. Uh, there were several Greek deities that were worshipped at Antioch. Uh, and so we kind of have this melting pot, this city of, of Antioch. And I want to read this quote by a guy named John Stott. He said this about Antioch. No more appropriate place could be imagined either as the venue for the first international church or as the springboard for the worldwide Christian mission. So this was such a perfect place for the church, a church to be birthed that would reach not just the Jewish people, but that would reach the nations. And so this is, this is the church at Antioch. This was a missional church. And so what, what I want us to see as we dive into chapter 11, I want us to see a few marks of a church on mission. All right, so let me pray. We'll jump into Acts 11. Lord, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for this time when we could just come into your, 
your presence. And uh, Lord, I pray that as we move through this day and through this week, um, Lord, that we would immerse ourselves in the events of this week and all that took place that week of your passion when you entered into Jerusalem and you intentionally, purposely uh, were marching towards your death, that death that would free us, that death that would um, pay for uh, our sin because of your blood that was shed on, on the cross at Calvary. And so, Lord, I pray that uh, we would not take these events lightly. I pray that you would help us to remember and celebrate all that you did for us. Uh, I pray that we could see today as we, as we look at your word, as we look at the early church, this church on mission, God, I pray that we would be able to see um, how that church was birthed because of what you did um, on the cross and through your death and your burial and your resurrection. And so, Lord, I pray that we would be able to be a church that sees the model of the church in Antioch and that we would follow in, in her footsteps. God, we want to be a church on mission too. And so I pray that you'd help us to th- see the things that you need us to see. I pray that you would help us to uh, repent where we need to repent. I pray that you would just uh, encourage us where we need to be encouraged. Uh, and just open our eyes to your word today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And so Acts chapter 11, there's four things that we want to see, four marks of a church on mission. Here's the first thing. A church on mission is a church that is evangelizing, evangelizing. So let's look at verses 19, chapter 11, verse 19 through 21. Here's, so we're coming off of, uh, you know, this, this uh, Gentile Pentecost where the Holy Spirit has fallen on the Gentiles. Um, now the Gentiles are included in the people of God. Uh, Peter comes back to the church at Jerusalem. They question him about this whole activity. He reports what has happened, how the Holy Spirit has fallen on them just as on us, he says. And they end by saying, then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. Verse number 19. Now, those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen, and this is going back to chapter 8, traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also. These are Greek-speaking Gentiles preaching the Lord Jesus, it says. Verse 21, And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. All right, so here it kind of references back to Acts chapter 8, verses 1 through 4. If you remember, Stephen was a deacon. He was martyred. He was the first martyr of the church. Uh, he, he was murdered, and, and then it says in those verses following, in chapter 8, verses 1 through 4, that, that those, because of the persecution, persecution against the church, they were scattered. So the Jewish believers at that point scattered all over the place. What we see here is that many of them came to this place called Antioch, this city. And so here they are, the believers were scattered. One of the things it says that as they were scattered abroad, they went preaching the word. And so some came to Antioch and a church was born. If you look back at that, that passage, it says they were speaking the word to no one except to Jews. Now, this wasn't necessarily because they were 
like prejudice, um, like we kind of saw last week. It's just was, it was the most natural thing. They were refugees relocating to a new city. They were meeting other uh, Jews, and so they were speaking the word to Jews. But then you have these others who come in, and it says they were preaching the Lord Jesus to, uh, to the Hellenists, the Greek-speaking Gentiles. And so you have the Lord Jesus being preached both to Jews and to Gentiles. And what happens here is it says that the hand of the Lord was, was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. So I just want to pause here for a second, because here's what you see. You see that these people are, are concerned with evangelism. You all know what evangelism is? It means to bring good news, to bring good news, bringers of good news. It's bringing the gospel, which is good news. Uh, and realize this, the gospel is first an announcement. It's an announcement. It's announcing something good has happened. So in order to understand the good news, you have to understand the bad news, that we are sinners, we are separated from God because of our sin. So the good news is because of what Jesus has done for us, taking our sin upon himself, upon the cross, and dying in our place, we can be forgiven. We can have a relationship with God. We can, like we sung about, spend all of eternity with God, with the Lord. This is good news. And so they are going about preaching the Lord Jesus. They are proclaiming the gospel. It says that the hand of the Lord was with them. Y'all, why do you think the hand of the Lord was with those early believers? Could it be because they were consumed with one thing and one thing only? The Lord Jesus, the gospel, right? They were proclaiming Jesus. They were proclaiming his word. And so it says that the hand of the Lord was with them. I just believe it was because they were faithful to the gospel. They were faithful to his word. And this is, listen, this is just a reminder to all of us that this is his work, y'all. That, that we can do all the things that we want to do as, as followers of Jesus and as the church, but man, unless the Lord's hand is upon us, man, nothing, is gonna, nothing of eternal consequence is going to take place. It requires the hand of the Lord being upon us. And I'm thankful because I have seen evidence and I continue to see evidence of the Lord's hand upon us and upon his church. And I think if, it, if his hand is indeed upon us, I believe it's because of the simplicity of what we're doing compared to the simplicity of what they were doing, which was preach the Lord Jesus. Be true to the gospel. Speak the word. Preach the Lord Jesus. So... The result of his hand upon them was a great number who believed turned to the Lord. And again, this is the first, this is so amazing to think of this. This was the first like mixed assembly. It wasn't just Jews anymore. It was Jew and Gentile together. The diversity in this church was, was amazing. And it's because they cared about evangelism. They cared about taking the good news to unbelievers, taking the good news to what we would call the lost, those who need Jesus. And so they were consumed with helping others to, to know who Jesus was. It was literally, if you look at this passage, literally a, a bunch of no-name Christians, right? It's, it's just no names. There, there's literally no names, just 
some men, some individuals from these different places who came and preached the gospel. Here's one thing I thought of yesterday that is not in my notes, but I think is interesting. Um, there is a church that forms here. You never see them talk about a building or a place or this like formal organization. But what is natural is that when people put their faith in Jesus, they come together. They come into relationship with one another. And so this church is born out of evangelism, sharing the gospel. People come to Christ. This church in Antioch, all these believers just come together because a bunch of everyday, no-name Christians are preaching Jesus. And this is an amazing thing. And so here's, here's kind of a, a point of evaluation for us as a church and as individuals. This is the question for, for me and for us. Are we a church that cares about reaching the lost with the gospel? That's the question I have for me. That's the question I have for us. Are we a church that cares about people that aren't church people? Are we a church that cares about, about people who don't know who Jesus is? Is, is that who we are? Do we care about reaching lost? Do, let, me, let me turn it inwards to you. Are you a person who cares about people who don't know Jesus? Are you a person who cares about people who are outside of, outside of Christ, that don't understand the forgiveness and the freedom and the life that he offers to us? Uh, this, this past week, I shared my, my story, my testimony with our youth. Um, and I literally, like, I, I did not plan it. I didn't expect it. But I started, like, unpacking my story, how I came to Christ. And I got all emotional. And I feel like I do every single time. And I'm like, where did that come from? Well, it comes from the fact that Jesus changed my life. That I, for 16, almost 17 years of my life, had no understanding of who God was. And then I heard the good news. And it turned my life upside down. And I still can't get over that. And y'all, we have people that we know and we love in our homes, in our neighborhoods, in our schools, in our workplace that, that don't know Jesus. Are we a church that cares about getting the gospel to them? This was a marker of the early church, and I think this is why you see God's hand was upon them. And I believe that if we're going to be a church that God's hand continues to be upon, it's going to be because we care about people who don't yet know Jesus. Amen? So a church that's on mission is evangelizing. Here's a second thing we see. A church on mission is a church that is discipling, discipling, making disciples. So go with me to verse 22. Verse 22 to 26 says this. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem. Okay, all these people, this great number who have turned to the Lord. This report comes to the ears of the church in Jerusalem. Remember the mother church. And they sent Barnabas to Antioch. Verse 23, when he came and he saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called, what? Christians. This is the very first time they're called Christians. And so uh, let's kind of retrace what's going on here. The, the Jerusalem church hears word that say, okay, there's this whole group of people that are coming to the Lord. And so they sent Barnabas. It's kind of like a, a few chapters ago. Remember when the Samaritans, the Holy Spirit is coming upon them and the church in Jerusalem hears. And so they send uh, Peter 
and John, the apostles, they're kind of like, let's check this out. Let's verify that this is actually, you know, God working here. And it's, it's what Tim Keller says. It's basically like quality control. All right, we want to make sure that what is happening here, what we're hearing, is actually of the Lord. And so they send Barnabas this time as, as their representative. And did you notice what it says that, that Barnabas saw when he, when he comes? It says, um, it says that he saw the grace of God, and he was glad, and he exhorted them. So he sees what's going on. He sees the, the grace of God at work, and it makes him glad. And he exhorts them. He encourages them. Do you remember what Barnabas' name means? You remember? Son of encouragement. And so he's living up to his name. He comes and he's encouraging them. He's encouraging to, to, to grow in the Lord, to stay uh, you know, on task and to grow in their faith, to be faithful to the Lord. And so he's encouraging them. Why? It says because he's a good man. He's full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And, and let me just say this. Uh, I love Barnabas because he is such an encourager. He challenges the people in their faith. He helps, he invests in them. Uh, here's what I want to say about Barnabas. We all need a Barnabas in, in our life. You know what I'm saying? Someone who, who is an encouragement, who like challenges us to like grow and stretch our faith, who pushes us out of our comfort zone. Every single one of us, if we're really going to become all that God wants us to be, we need a Barnabas in our life. And if you don't have somebody like that, somebody who can kind of be like a spiritual mentor, I would begin praying, God, give me a Barnabas. Give me someone who can encourage me and, and help me and push me along in my faith. This is who Barnabas was. He was investing in them. He was discipling them. He was helping them to grow in their faith, to, to know the Lord, to love the Lord, to follow the Lord. And so you have this, this church of, of baby believers, right? These are all infants in their faith. They've just put their faith in Jesus. So it's kind of like, you know, walking into a nursery, like a spiritual nursery where you just have a bunch of, you know, little babies and infants toddling around, but they don't, they don't understand their faith. They don't know how to live yet. They need some guidance, right? If y'all, like, if y'all walked into the nursery and there was no supervision, you'd be like, this place needs help. Let me go find somebody to help, right? Uh, no, I love kids, so I'm going to help. So this is Barnabas, but what it says is that, that he was exhorting them, he was discipling them, but many more were coming to the Lord. And so what Barnabas recognizes is, I can't do this on my own. I can't disciple all of these new infant baby believers. And so he go, goes and finds help. Who's he find? He finds Saul. He goes to Tarsus. The last time he saw Paul, he had, he had come to Christ on the road to Damascus. Uh, he, he begins to grow in his faith, uh, spends a few years growing, and, and yet he retreats back to Tarsus because they're coming now for his life, remember? So, so Barnabas goes, man, I'm going to go find Saul and, and bring him with me. So he literally goes and finds Saul. And, and this, at this point in Saul's life, this is probably some 12, 13, 14 years after Saul has come to faith in Christ. So he's, he's been growing in his faith. God has been teaching him and he's been learning. He's become mature in his faith. And so, Saul, so Barnabas goes and, and brings Saul. He brings him back to uh, this church, this new church in in Antioch, and I want you to look at verse number 26 again with me. Here, here's what it says. Barnabas found Saul. He brought him to Antioch, and for a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many 
people. Man, y'all, this is so critical for discipleship. They met with them and they taught them. They met with them and they taught them. They met with them and they taught them. What do you think they taught them? The word of God, right? So for a year, a year solid, they are just pouring their lives and the word of God into these new believers. They are raising them up. They're helping them to come to maturity in their faith. And this is the process of of discipling. And I want want to make sure you you catch this. Uh, There was a few words in here that I saw repeated, and I thought it was interesting. In verse number 24, it says that a great many people were saved. A great many people put their faith in Jesus. And then when it talks about Saul and Barnabas teaching the people, it says that they taught a great many people. So are you tracking with me? A great many people are saved. A great many people are discipled. So I, I want to pause here for a second because this is important. Because what this tells us is that we have a responsibility as the church. Not just to get people saved, not just to get people to make decisions for Jesus. We have a responsibility to disciple them. Do you know what I mean? This means we don't just birth spiritual babies. We now have like some, some spiritual parenting to do. Like we are responsible to help them grow in their faith until they become mature young adults and mature older fathers and mothers in their faith. And, and this is This is one of the things in the church that many churches have a desire to birth new spiritual babies. I want people to make decisions for Jesus and I want to like populate the kingdom of God, but I don't want to take the time that it, that it requires, which is a lot of time. You know, if you're a parent, you know, it takes a lot of time and intention, blood, sweat, and tears to raise children to maturity. And our responsibility isn't just to get people to raise their hand, to mark a card, to make a decision. Our responsibility is to get them to faith in Jesus and then to grow them in their faith in Jesus. Why? So that they can produce other followers of Jesus. This is our responsibility if we love the gospel, if we care about being a church on mission. And this is what you you see here. In fact, that one year of of teaching, it says that the disciples were first called Christians here. So notice the language. They were first called Christians. They didn't didn't call themselves that, okay? They didn't say, hey, we're Christians. No, no, this this term Christians meant little Christs. It was a term of, of derision. All right? It was because people looked at their life, these, these outsiders, you know, probably these Gentiles are looking on and seeing what's going on, and, and they were giving them a hard time. They were calling them names. They were calling them like, you little Christs. And it was, it was meant to be a term of derision. But I think what happened is that early church took that as, as kind of a, as, a, as a badge of honor. You know what I'm saying? That you would say, like, we're so devoted to imitating Christ. Hey, Amen. That's, that's not... That's not an insult. That's a compliment, right? That you would call us little Christs. It, it was because they were so different than the, from the culture around them that, man, they had, to call them, they had to call them names because this is the point where they have this, this new identity. And, and this is where you see there's, there's now this like third classification or third race, if you will, not just Jew, not just Gentile, but Christian church. And, and this is, is what we see here. I want to read you a quote from, from an early church historian. His name was Eusebius. 
Uh, he, he says this, it says this, Eusebius, the, the famous early church historian, describes a believer named Sanctus from Lyons, France, who was tortured for Jesus. As they tortured him cruelly, they hoped to get him to say something evil or blasphemous. They asked his name, and he would only reply, I am a what? I'm a CH. Okay, no. I'm a Christian. Uh, I'm a Christian. What nation do you belong to? He would answer, I'm a Christian. What city do you live in? I'm a Christian. His questioners began to get angry. Are you a slave or a free man? I'm a Christian was his only reply. No matter what they asked about him, he would only answer, I'm a Christian. This made his torturers all the more determined to break him, but they could not. And he died with the words, I am a Christian, on his lips. You see, to, to disciple someone is to help them live into their new identity as a Christian, a little Christ, a follower of Jesus. This is what it means to disciple someone, to help someone so understand their identity in Christ that they'd be willing to, to say, this is who I am, and man, I will go to the grave. I will, I will, I will die with this. And so here is, is, is what a church on mission does. It disciples. Here's the question that I have to evaluate us as, as a church. When people come in here, when they walk in, like Barnabas walked in, do they see the grace of God? Like when people walk in this place, do they see the grace of God at work in here? Do, do, does it make them glad? And do we get encouraged to grow? Do we encourage people when they come in this place Man, we're not just calling you into this exciting experience. No, we want you to experience the grace of God, and we want you to grow in knowing who God is and loving him and having your affections for Christ. Is this who we are? That's the question I have for us. And um, this is one of those where I know we are not a perfect church, man. We are growing in so many ways, but I love, I love where we're at. But it makes me ask the question, are we growing in the gospel to the degree that we look different from our culture? Do we look different from the culture around us? Would people look at what's going on here and go, man, this is different. These people are not just regular people. So let me tell you about uh, like a, a term that I've heard used recently about our church. Uh, one of our folks told me that one of their relatives heard what was going on in our church. And they said, you know what? I heard your church is a cult. Interesting, huh? Hmm, we're a cult. Um, which, to me, it, it feels like an insult, right? That feels, and it's, it's not typically used as a, you know, a term of endearment or affection. It's usually meant as a, as a put-down or an insult. Uh, but you know what? I've been in one church in my life that people in the community, would, there was the, the, the word cult was used to describe them. You know what church that was? It was my church in Northeast Ohio that we said was like the church of Antioch. And I remember back in those days going, what? You're calling us a cult? But I remember when I actually thought about it, I said, you know what? Um, that's kind of a badge of honor that people would say, you are so different. Your people are so devoted to what you're doing that anybody outside of, of the family of God would look on and go, what are they obsessed with? This is weird. Who gets this devoted to something? And so I look at that and I go, you know what? Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord that you would look at us and say, you're so different. You're different than other churches. You're different than everything else that we've seen. You're so devoted to the gospel. 
And so this is a church that was evangelizing. It was a church that was discipling. Here's a third mark. It was a church that was serving. It was a church that was serving. And I'll kind of hit this relatively quickly, but you look at verses 27 through 30. It says, now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. And one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. So let me just describe this for a second. They, they, this prophet comes, he predicts a coming famine which would take place. Uh, this is around 45, 47 uh, AD. Um, the disciples decided but before the famine even came, that there was a need coming, so they decided amongst themselves to provide support, to provide relief for them. And so it says that they gave as, as much as they could, as everyone, uh, according to his ability, it says. So they didn't say, well, how much is it going to cost? How much does is, is it require? No, every one of them said, okay, I'm going to give as much as I can, whatever I have. And so they gave, they took up this collection, this, this offering, and it says that they, they sent it to the elders at Jerusalem. Interesting little side note here. This is the first mention in the book of Acts of elders. All right, these are elders in the church of, of Jerusalem. Um, but, but this is so interesting here because... Here, here's, here's the baby church, right? The church at Antioch that has been birthed. And then there's the mother church, which is the church at Jerusalem. Typically what you see in this kind of scenario is like the mother church or the parent church, the adult is helping provide for the kids, right? That's typically how life works. But here is this scenario where we've got these, these new believers, these disciples who are growing in their faith, and they're the ones that are going, man, there's a need back in Jerusalem, and we can do something to provide. There was something we can do to serve them. And so they took up this collection and they, they, they served this church that really helped birth them. And so I just, I love this because we see what the gospel produces. The gospel produces mercy and it produces generosity. It produces ministry and word and indeed. We see really... Galatians 6 verse 10 exemplified here. Galatians 6 says this. So then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Because what we see here is that they're sending, these aren't just people in the culture. These are their brothers and sisters in a, in a different church in Jerusalem. This was a whole different group of believers, different in culture and ethnicity. They were far away. They were 300 miles away. But yet, they're serving them. And so this is what you see in, in a church that is on mission. A church is evangelizing, it's discipling, it's serving, it's, it's being selfless. And this is what that church is doing. It's putting others before themselves. So here is kind of the point of, of application. For us and for me, are we becoming more generous and are we becoming more selfless? Like, is the gospel producing this in us, that we would want to serve others, that we would put ourselves last? Are we becoming this kind of church? I think, you know, that we're growing, and you know, you've heard me talk about head, heart, hands, the whole person. I, I know that we're growing in our knowledge, like our head knowledge. Uh, I believe we're growing in our heart love for the Lord, our affections, uh, but we've got to continue, y'all, to grow in, in that hands piece that we're serving people. 
because there's a danger in receiving and, and not giving. And so this year, this is the year of mission, my hope is that we will continue to grow in our local mission and our global outreach as well. So let me, let me do a quick side note, because we're not going to cover chapter 12. If you're reading in our Bible reading plan, you'll come across this uh, tomorrow uh, as you read. Uh, actually, I don't think you have it tomorrow. It might be next week before you read chapter 12. Um, Chapter 12, what you see in this chapter is this wicked king named Herod who, who rises up. He's persecuting the church, uh, much like Saul did before, but it's not with, with religious zeal. He wants the praise of the people. And it says that he kills uh, John, the brother of, uh, sorry, James, the brother of John. He arrests Peter. There's this miraculous delivery uh, from prison. You have to read it. It's pretty cool. But this king Herod gets angry. And uh, he's mad about all this, and, and, and the people are kind of praising him as God, and he loves it. He is eating it up. And I want to read just an interesting verse here that, that I don't want you to miss, verse 23 in chapter 12. He receives the praise of the people, and it says this, Immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory, and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. Uh, we couldn't skip that verse, y'all. That's just an amazing, like, boom, dead, you know, like he's gone uh, moment, like because he wanted... He was taking the glory that belonged to the Lord. But here's just another point. Look at the next verse. It says, verse 24, but the word of God increased and multiplied. I just want you all to see that like this theme continues, that opposition rises up. Even King Herod, who's trying to take the place of God, and yet God just, man, runs him clean over. He says, you're not going to stop my mission. Nobody is going to stop what I am doing in the world. God's mission will not be stopped. Opposition to the gospel actually increases and advances the gospel, advances the mission. And so I'm going to show you a couple pictures. I pulled into the church last night about 7, 7.30 p.m., um, and I saw these pictures of our banners out front that we have on either side of our, our driveway. Uh, this is on, um, you know, this east side, this driveway here. The, the, the banner is just, like, mangled, wrapped around the light pole. Uh, on the other side, which is the west side, um, it's, it's down. And, uh, you know, when I, looked, when I pulled up, um, I didn't think about it being a windy day yesterday. Um, I, what I saw when I pulled up was this pole that was you know, just leveled. Um, so I don't know what the case was. I don't know if someone was, uh, it looks like somebody was drunk after the cup and they ran over our sign. You know what I'm saying? Um, but when I looked at what happened, my immediate thought was like, what's going on here? I texted these pictures to our staff and I said, talk about opposition, dot, dot, dot. Uh, Cause when I saw this, it looked too uh, deliberate and too malicious to be just an accident. And it may have been, I have no idea. But all I thought of was like, hmm, this may be God saying, I don't need no stinking advertisements. You know what I'm saying? This opposition, whatever it is that the enemy wants to throw at us, it's not going to stand in my way. I have a work to do. This isn't going to stop people from coming on Easter. This isn't going to stop the gospel from being preached. This isn't going to stop lives from being changed. Amen? God's mission will not be stopped. And so I told the staff, I said, all right, we were planning on 350, plan for 400. God is doing something. And this shows me the enemy hates it. 
but God's not going to be stopped. Here's a verse of transition, the last verse of chapter 12. We'll hit our last point. It says, And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service. This was, you know, that relief mission that they were on, uh, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. So here we come into this fourth and final mark of a church on mission. A church on mission is sending. It's evangelizing. It's discipling. It's serving. It's sending. And I want you to see these first three verses of, of chapter 13, verses 1 through 3. Here's what it says. It says, Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who is called Niger, uh, Lucius of Cyrene, uh, Menaean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. Okay, there's a lot of, we won't go into it here, a lot of diversity here amongst these, these prophets and teachers, these leaders in the church of Antioch. Verse 2, While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and what? Sent them off. All right, so here's what's taking place here. In the, the midst of their worship, in the midst of their prayer, God speaks to them and God calls out to them. He says, separate or set apart from me Barnabas and Saul for this work that I've called them to. The thing I want to just point out to us here, if you don't know this already, God is a missionary God. God is all about sending. His call is always to go. In fact, let me read you this quote from a, an old missionary, a Scottish missionary, David Livingston, who was a, a missionary to Africa in the 1800s. He said, God had only one son and he was a missionary. God is a missionary God who, who sends, is always sending us with the gospel. And what you see here is that a life of worship and prayer leads to sending. Here's what Tony Marita said about this church. He says, churches that impact the world exalt Jesus passionately and seek him in prayer dependently and expectantly. The story begins in prayer, and then after Barnabas and Saul are selected, the believers pray again. This church's actions were drenched in prayer. They were a praying church. They were a worshiping church. They were a sending church. And what I love about this is, man, they're in the middle of worship. God calls out. He says, Saul and Barnabas, like, I'm calling them to a mission. I want you to send them. And it says that the congregation, like, what they do is God calls them. The congregation affirms what God is, is doing here. And so the church is, they're responsive to God's call, to, to uh, you know, God's call on people's lives. And then the church is willing to send her best. Like these are key leaders in the church at this point. This is Barnabas and, and Saul. The, these weren't no-name nobodies. It was the very best, the cream of the crop. The church said, for the sake of the mission, we want to send, we're going to send Barnabas and Saul. We're willing to release them to this mission that God has, has called them to. And then Barnabas and Saul are willing and obedient. Like, check out, check out if we can go back to that verse, uh, 13, 1 through 3. When, we, when you look at that, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me. Check out the mission that, that God is calling them to. Barnabas and Saul, for the work to which I have called them. What is the work to which you are calling us? I don't know. This is kind of like, remember Abraham? Back in Genesis 12, when God said, I want you to get up, leave your land, and I want you to go. 
did you see Abraham go, where do you want me to go? He said, nope, go where I send you. Go where I show you. I'll reveal it to you. But are you willing? And this is what God says about Barnabas and Saul. This Holy Spirit says, set apart for me, Barnabas and Saul, for the work that I've called them to. They don't say, where are you sending us? What is the job? They just say, here I am. Send me. They're willing. They're available. They, they are obedient to his call. They are the first missionaries sent to the nations. The, the, you know, worldwide missions, if, if, if you're familiar with what we're talking about here, like sending the gospel to the nations, it's born here in this moment in this church. They will be the first missionaries sent out. So let, let me ask this question as we kind of evaluate ourselves and where we're at. Do we see ourselves as missionaries? Do we see ourselves as, as sent ones? That, you know, my prayer, my hope is that God will raise up missionaries out of our church to take the gospel to other parts of our nation and the world. I would love to see God say, hey, set apart these individuals to take the gospel to the world. But y'all, the reality is that every single one of us are, are, are missionaries. I don't have it for you, but Charles Spurgeon said this, every one of us is either a missionary or an imposter. Like we're, we're all called to be missionaries. And so this is a church that sent their people. This is why y'all, every week our benediction, the intention is we want to send you out on mission. Y'all ever, there was a church, our, our church in college had this as you, as you exited the building, there was like a sign over the doorways. Have you ever all, I think actually both of the churches in college and then the one in New Philadelphia had this on the doorway above the, the exit. It said, you are now entering, anybody know the rest of the words? Your mission field. And I love that. I love that. I was trying to think, can I get that up on our doorways before this Sunday? And I couldn't. You are now entering your mission field. I love that because it was a reminder that every, every time we walk out of the, these doors, we're walking into our mission field. Like wherever, wherever God sends us, wherever we go is the place where God has called us to live on mission. So do we see ourselves as, as missionaries? Uh, I told our staff this recently because I'm dreaming of, of the day when I told them this is the, the most exciting and the most yet bittersweet moment in our church is going to be when we have the privilege of praying over and sending out people from our church. It's going to be sweet because we're doing what God has called us to do. It's going to be bitter because we have got to be willing to release even the very best of our people for the sake of the mission. God, whatever you call us to do, whoever you call to go, we're going to be obedient. We're going to send them. Why? Because it's not about us. It's, it's for the sake of the gospel. It's for the sake of the mission. And so I said, get ready. There's going to be some people that we're going to be sad that they're going to leave, but we're going to rejoice because the mission of God is going to go out of this church into the world. And so I cannot wait, y'all, for the day when we get to pray over and send people out of this church on mission. But in the meantime, do we see ourselves as missionaries? So let me kind of land this. Let me review. A church on mission is evangelizing, it's discipling, it's serving, it's, it's sending. This is a, the kind of church that changes the world. This is the kind of church that changes the world. J.D. Greer said it this way. This is kind of harsh, but I love it. He says this, without the mission, a church is not a church. It's just a group of disobedient Christians hanging out. The church exists for mission. 
if we're not doing the mission, what are we doing? We're just a bunch of disobedient Christians hanging out. And so I do want to encourage you because I do love what God is doing in our church. I believe we've been growing deeper in the gospel. Uh, We've been making it the foundation of our lives and of our church, which is very good and very necessary. But oh my goodness, y'all, we face a great danger. Uh, We face a great danger. The danger is this, that we would continue to gain a deeper knowledge of the gospel without a deepening love for people. That's always the danger, is that we would grow so much in in understanding and loving the Bible and knowing the Bible that we we miss out on a deepening love for people. The mission, y'all, is about the gospel and it's about getting the gospel to people. And so, man, at, at this place in our history where we're at, I just want to exhort us. I want to challenge us, remind us. Man, it's about the gospel, but here's the final last point. A love for the gospel produces a love for people. A love for the gospel produces a love for people. And this is why we're talking about the year of, of, of mission, because we want our, our, our depth in the gospel to be equaled by our, our width with the gospel. We want to take it wide. We want to reach people with the truth of the gospel. A church on mission is evangelizing, discipling, serving, and sending. So I want to I pray. We're going to move into just a few minutes of celebrating the Lord's Supper together. God, I just want to thank you for this, uh, this incredible passage, this incredible church, this model church that we see in, in Antioch that... Um, God was at a church that, that cared about getting the gospel out as evangelizing. It was discipling people. It was serving people. It was sending people out for the sake of the gospel. Thank you for this example that you've given to us of a church on mission. God, I, I, be, I want us to be a church that is on mission. God, I know that is your desire for this church I know it is your desire for us as, as individuals and as your body that we would be this kind of church that is on mission. And God, thank you for the way that you are building our church and for the things that you are doing, our love for the gospel. But Lord, I pray that you would just continue to give us a deepening love for people to get this good news to people who so desperately need it. And God, as we consider this This week, Holy Week, and this day in particular, Palm Sunday, Lord, I pray that you would remind us of of all that you did to get the gospel to us and to get the gospel to the ends of the earth through us. Lord, the sacrifice that you have made so that we could be a part of your church, so that we could be disciples, so that we could be called Christians, little Christs. And so, Lord, as we enter into this week, remind us of who you are and all that you've done Lord, we love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.